You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark and Jace. This is episode number 68. I just want to start off with our new giveaway. As you heard last week, we're giving away a new copy of Chris Hogan's recently released book titled Everyday Millionaires. We had Chris on our show a couple months back, and, and we each received a copy of his book and thought it would be fun to give one away to our listeners. We're also including a $50 Visa gift card to go with that, so $50 and Chris Hogan's new book, Everyday Millionaires. To enter the giveaway, we're asking you to do two things. One is to join our email list, which you can find at our website, millionairesunveiled.com. And second, to subscribe and leave a review of our show on either iTunes or Stitcher. That giveaway will go on for a couple weeks, and we'll draw uh, the winner here at the end of the month. A special thanks to Equity Multiple for supporting today's show. One of the tried and true paths to becoming and staying a millionaire is establishing passive income streams. Perhaps the most tried and true passive income channel for savvy investors is commercial real estate. Equity Multiple connects accredited investors with pre-vetted exclusive commercial real estate investments with investment minimums as low as $10,000. With Equity Multiple, you can allocate a meaningful portion of your portfolio to professionally managed commercial real estate and create a stronger, more diversified portfolio. Head to equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires to learn more. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires and you can tell them Clark and Jay sent you. On last week's show, we had Keith, the wealthy accountant. He has a current net worth of over $10 million, which came through his tax and accounting business as well as real estate acquisitions. Next week's show is a guest interview with Sarah Falah. She is Thomas Stanley's daughter, the author of the famous book, The Millionaire Next Door. And she, along with her father, wrote a new book titled The Next Millionaire Next Door. So we discuss that new book with Sarah and discuss her findings and insights about millionaires. Next month's giveaway, we're going to do another giveaway, and that will feature a copy of this new book. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, feel free to reach out to us at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com, and we'll jump on a quick call with you to discuss any opportunities and and what our strategy is and, and our successful track record. On today's show, we have Andy, and Andy has a remarkable story. It's been featured on Dave Ramsey, and and he has a net worth of over $4 million. And so without further ado, let's just jump right into his story. Andy, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, sure. Uh, Like like you said, my name's Andy. I live in the Indianapolis area. I'm uh, just turned 48. I am actually by degree and profession an engineer. also an avid investor. I got into real estate investing, uh, I'd say several years ago. We'll probably talk about that. Uh, I consider myself just a ordinary guy, nothing spectacular. I've just done the right things with my money. And years later, it worked. Everything I read about my twenties worked by the time I got to my forties. And I guess we're going to talk about that here on this podcast. Yeah. And what kind of engineer are you? I'm actually, believe it or not, a what's called a materials engineer, also called also known as metallurgical engineering, which a lot of people don't know about. I'm a, I'm a specialist in the heat treatment and hardening of steel, of wow. all things. And did you get a four-year very degree unique, for that? Very unique. Four-year degree, yep. And also I have an MBA that I got. I got that about 10 years after I got my engineering degree. Oh, nice. And what is your net worth yep. today? Well, <laughs> it's funny you say that. 
with the stock market going up and down and really kind of crazy the last six weeks, uh, plus or minus 4 million, just it's, it's hovering up and down right around the 4 million mark. Awesome. And how is that broken up? Uh, well, let me take a look at my spreadsheet. Like most of your millionaires interview, I'm a spreadsheet guy. Let me take a look. And I'll, I'll kind of explain why one of these is so lopsided when we get in there. But I've got about 2.7 in my IRAs and 401ks. I've got 780000 in real estate. I've got 63000 in 529 and some miscellaneous equities. I've got 260000 in music royalties, which we can talk about if you want to delve into that. And I've got about 146000 in cash and cash equivalents and how that's broken down. Kind of explain why, but my IRA 401k is very lopsided. If you heard my numbers, it's 68%. One of the reasons that is, is I worked for a company for 13 years that was an ESOP company. And if you study ESOPs, a lot of them have a very negative connotation because it's something they tried, I want to say, late 80s, early 90s, and a lot of them failed. Mm -hmm. I think United Airlines had one. I don't think it was super successful, but the company I worked for had an ESOP, and it actually worked. And when I left that company, I rolled that ESOP into my IRA and it was over a million dollars. So oh, wow. that's why that, that IRA 401k is so, so large in my portfolio because obviously I had my own 401ks I was investing in very heavy, but a huge chunk came from that ESOP conversion. Yeah. Just for our listeners that may, may have never heard of an ESOP, do you want to just give us a little brief explanation on, on what that is and, and how sure. it benefited you personally? Yeah, I can, yeah, I can kind of explain so an ESOP is Employee Stock Ownership Program, and basically I worked for a corporate company. They were actually, I think they're about a $2 billion company. They went ESOP back in the 80s, actually, because they were so cash heavy, they were afraid there could be a comp- an outside company buy them and basically buy them with the cash they had. So to protect themselves, they actually became an ESOP. So it's kind of launched as a protective mechanism, but then it became a very marketable way to recruit good employees. So when I worked there, I started there in 94. And what we did is we got 20, whatever our salary was, each year we got 25% match of that in ESOP. So make the numbers easy. Let's say you're making $40,000. They would put in $10,000 worth of stock each year. So a lot of the people that work for that company actually worked for below market value because when you thought long long term of what we were getting with the ESOP, it was a really lucrative deal. But what happened with that company is in about 2000, they bought another company in a hostile takeover that was a publicly traded company. And the timing was really bad. I won't go into the industry, but that industry went into the tank and it almost bankrupted us. So we were privately evaluated each year by a uh, like an Arthur Anderson or some uh, independent company of our, our share price and our shares just went south fast. And a lot of people left the company and I kind of tell people I got a little bit lucky because I was working on my MBA at the time when all that was going on and the company was paying for my MBA. And because I wanted to finish my MBA and have them pay for it, I stayed through that big storm. And through that storm, a new CEO came in, turned it around and our share price went 10 acts on us and things happen to many of us. So yeah, it's a, it's a rare ESOP success story, but yeah, you're basically an, an, an owner of the company. And then 
it's all for retirement, so you can't touch it till you're 59 and a half. And if you leave the company, you can roll it over to an IRA without any penalty. And that's what I ended up doing when I left. Yeah, that's really cool. So of your, of your retirement accounts, how much of that is traditional and how much is Roth? Uh, well, it's funny you say that. It, it's a good topic. I have zero in Roth. So all of my IRA 401k is all pre-tax. So Roth is something I really didn't discover probably, I would say, till my early 30s. And because my ESOP and 401ks were so healthy, I just, I let them just, it was like autopilot. I'm throwing in there and it's growing. I never even got into uh, a Roth IRA. And it's probably like a question people ask is if you could go back in time, what would you change? That would probably be one thing is at some point I, I should have probably IRA. So zero in Roth, believe it or not. So of the, of the retirement money, how is that investor? Are you in index funds and mutual funds? You trade individual stocks? You got some bonds? Zero individual stocks. And I actually have a professional money manager. And he's a guy I started with when I was, let me think of the years, about two, early 2000s. So I was in my early 30s. I had next to nothing in net worth. He was brand new uh, financial advisor. He had nothing. <laughs> so we started together and we grew together. And he's a guy now in his early 40s and he manages about $300 million. So he's grown. I've grown with him. So I trust him. So he manages my account. I, I peeked in there. A lot of index funds, for sure. There's a little bit in bonds, but to, to be honest, I don't know exactly what's in I would have to log in and take a look at what, what the mix is. And what I do know is part of his philosophy, and it definitely worked when we went through the, the recession, was part of its defense in there. So when the recession hit and the market was down and everybody's down negative 20, 25%, I was down like 3 or 4%. So when you look at my portfolio, that investment, when the market goes up, say, 20%, I may be up 17%. But when it goes way down, I'm, so there's, there's kind of a, an amplitude compression there that I like the fact the way he's got it, got it mixed in there. So I can't answer exactly what he's got, but, but I will say when I was in my mid-20s and discovered the financial world and started reading books, we can get into what books influenced me. I did start my own investing on the side. I had the ESOP. I had the 401k I was maxing out. But when I discovered the philosophy of pay yourself first, I actually started on my own investing as much as I could into just an index fund that was drafted right out of my account. It actually was with, this is back in 98, it started, was with Wells Fargo. So I did build, build up a pretty good chunk of money in that account. And I later used that to buy real estate. So Andy, I want to, before we kind of dive into this allocation and more of the details in real estate and then of course the music royalties, maybe yeah. just back up and, and just spend, you know, two minutes, you know, or three minutes telling your story about how this got started. You mentioned you initially just sure. started investing in index funds and, you know, mm -hmm. obviously it took you 25 years or so to get to where you're at. And, and so maybe right. just briefly talk about that story to where you are now. Yeah. Yeah, let's reverse all the way back to age 19. When I was 19, I was a freshman in college, and the fraternity I joined made us write down our life goals, and I had never done that before. It was actually a great exercise. So one of those life goals that I wrote down at age 19 was I wanted to be a millionaire by 30, retired by 40. So I know there's this big fire community. I'm not really part of that, but at 19, I think I had the fire mindset. Well, what happened is I graduated at age 23, 
I was out in the real world for about two years. I had a little tiny ESOP going, a little bit of 401k. And I was just like, okay, I'm 25. I made this goal to be a millionaire by 30. There's a big gap here. <laughs> so I need to do something. What, what I'm doing is good, but it's not going to let me achieve my goals. So what I did, I was actually, I can say I had just turned 25. I was in a pretty dark place. I'd lost a family member. He'd passed away. He was like a life mentor to me. So I was, I'll be honest, I was drinking too much and I had a sports injury. I was taking painkillers for my injury and I was in a really not a good place. And one day I woke up and I just said, I've had it. I literally remember the day I woke up, looked in the mirror and said, I'm done. And what I did is I was actually on the internet in 95 on AOL. And believe it or not, back in those primitive days, they had little chat rooms and they had an entrepreneur trap chat room. I went in there and I met a guy through that chat room that was an entrepreneur and much like I am today trying to help other people because I'm on the far side of my career. He said he was willing to help me and I kind of gave him my story and he said, and I was age 25, he said, before I help you, have you read the book Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins? I said, I've heard of the guy. I see him on infomercials. I have no idea. He goes, I will not help you until you read this book. So lo and behold, I drove out to the bookstore when they still existed. I bought Awaken the Giant Within. I was never a reader. I'm a math science guy. I'm an engineer. I picked up that book and I don't, I think I slept three hours a day for the next week. I could not put that book down and it absolutely changed the entire trajectory of my life. That book did. And when I tell people that come to me and ask me, how do you build wealth? I tell them before you pick up a financial book, you have to get your life in order. Your, everything that's in your life has to be perfectly in order before you start going after money. And so that book was just a huge turning point for me personally. And then from there, I discovered personal development and I was listening to tapes in my car, reading as many books as I can. And then I stumbled into 1996, the book, The Millionaire Next Door. And then, then everything changed. And in all of that learning of from the millionaire next door, which really, when I read that book, what, what, what struck me was I'm reading this book and I'm like, this book is about me <laughs> because everything they talked about with these people being frugal and being low key and investing and, and living below their means. I just felt such a connection to that book. And when I was done with that book, I was like, I can be a millionaire. Now, could I do it by 30 when I made 25? Probably not, but I knew it was possible. And then finally, there's a third book I read about a year later. It's not a well-known book, and it's called The Five Rituals of Wealth. It's out of print now, but it is out there used on eBay and some other places. But in that book, Todd Barnhart, who's the author, talks about what he had studied with wealthy people, and he, he highlighted the five principles he thought made them wealthy. And one of them was pay yourself first principle is the day I logged into Wells Fargo website, opened up an independent mutual fund account that I could just have them draft. And that's where my investing on my own in the mutual funds, just, I think they were just growth, growth mutual fund started is because of that principle, pay yourself first, probably a longer answer than you expected. But I want to kind of give you the background of three books that really made me grow and pushed me into putting as much as I could away. No, I, I think it's a it's a great answer, and I think all of us, t- to some extent, right, can can remember. Hey, you know, my mindset shifted at this point. 
or, you know, yep. maybe for some of us, we were taught at a young age or, or whatnot, but I think for a lot of people and a lot of our listeners, there was a point or a moment in time or a book or a pivotal conversation or moment where they said, mm -hmm. hey, this changed the way I'm thinking and, and it's going to affect my decisions going forward. Yep. So let's dive into this real estate, almost $800,000 in real estate, right? Yes. And, yep. and what's you that composed it. of? Is that single family, multifamily syndications, stuff you own, or, or kind of talk about that allocation that, a little bit? Yeah, that is uh, four houses, one that I live in that I'm standing in now. And then there's three rental properties and they're all, they're all single family homes. And one of the principles I live by is when I look for a property, I would never buy a rental home that I personally would not live in myself. And where I knew I was going the right route when I start, I bought my first one is my uh, insurance agent who's success, who is a very successful uh, real estate investor here in town. I said, here's a property I want you to insure. Well, before he insures it, he drives out and sees it. And he called me back. He goes, you're never going to have vacancy. He goes, what an area, what a great little house. And I can tell you, I have, that was four, I'm trying to think what I bought that. I bought that in April of 2014, paid cash. I have had zero vacancy. I've had the same tenant in there for four years and she just signed another two years. So that's one of the properties. And then I have another house that's about two blocks from that house because I discovered this, this little area outside of Indianapolis is just by accident. I bought there in 14 is now the boom town. It's just really nice houses, got great schools. The houses I own are within walking distance of the schools. And when I bought my second house, I had to do a little bit of cosmetic work, some landscaping. So before I was done, I just put a for rent sign. I went to Lowe's for $15. This was my marketing budget. I put a for rent sign in the front yard. Within 24 hours, I had about 15 interested people and three people competing for the house. And I signed a lease that day for two years, deposit in hand within about 48 hours of putting that sign. And I was just, and I have a brother who's a real estate investor in a different city. And he goes, that's amazing. <laughs> and that guy went through two year lease and he just resigned for another two years. So single is kind of what I know. I understand it's my sweet spot and it's what I'm comfortable with and that I, it's worked for me. And there is a third property that I have. And what that property is, it's south of Indianapolis and it's a lake house on a 15 acre lake. And it was a personal weekend place for me to go. And after my wife passed away five years ago, the kids no longer like going there, but I love the property and I didn't want to get rid of it. So I converted it into a rental property. So that's my third rental property. So I call that kind of my accidental rental property, but it's one of the three that I own. And then the fourth, obviously is the house I live in, which is paid off. So you've got a paid for house and what's that valued at? Uh, 488. Okay. And then, and, and then essentially the way three I got rentals. That is interesting. And I, and the way I paid off my mortgage is interesting. So I never subscribed to paying off my mortgage because I can borrow it three and a half, four percent. I can take that money and make it elsewhere. So I carried a mortgage on this house until this year. And there was a real estate deal that I hit that was just, uh, I've got a really good friend here in town that uh, goes to church with me, successful real estate investor. He kind of was a mentor slash coach. And I tell people, if it's possible, find a mentor. It's, and they always ask me how. I'm like, ah, you can't just call people and say, well, you mentor me. But, but you find people, you become friends with them. And this guy coached me. And I bought a property down near Louisville, Kentucky on the Indiana side. It was a 3,500 square foot home. 
built in 2001 and I got it on auction.com, which he warned me. He said, you'll never get it. They don't close deals, et cetera. My first try, I got that house with closing fees for $194,000 and it appraised for $379,000. And we had to put six grand into it for some doors because the guy who moved out for some reason took all the doors, custom doors. I lease, I rented it out on a lease to own to a guy and he actually bought it from me last, I want to say December. So I made a windfall of cash and I had a decision to make. I'm like, I've got a lot of cash. I can pay off my mortgage on my primary residence or I can go out and maybe buy two or three rental properties because in Indianapolis, you can buy a decent uh, three, two for, well, this is where I hit kind of a, a sideways is when I went out and the homes that I used to buy for about 100 to 110 because the market had improved, were up to about 130, 135. And I thought, well, the rents are about the same. So my return on that is not what I'm used to. And I just decided I'm going to pay off my primary residence, which I did last April. That's awesome. So with these other rental properties, though, do you typically take out a mortgage on them? And are they cash flowing a couple hundred bucks a month? Is that kind of what you shoot for in terms all, of your criteria? I paid, I paid cash for them. And people all say, how would you do that? All of them. Wow. Here's how I did that. This is not a traditional way, and I do not recommend this to anybody, but this is an important, I think, message for the people listening to the podcast. My wife got cancer at 37 years old. I was 38, and I was smart enough because of my financial advisor. When we sat down in 2006 and went over my all my financials, I got life insurance. Never thought I'd have to use it. Unfortunately, she passed away in 13, so I got a large life insurance settlement upon her passing. I had to make a decision what to do with that money. My goal with that money was I had to find something that produced income because my focus of that money was to take care of my kids, their education, because I got three teens that are looking at college, one's going next year, and that's where I was able to buy those homes with cash. So not a traditional way to get your funding. But I think the message I have for people is if you don't have life insurance, I recommend term insurance. It's the, it's the cheapest thing you can buy. You never think you're going to need it. But I can tell you, I personally had to use it, and it's really, really come through for me. Yeah, so going forward, would you recommend saving up cash to buy a rental property, or would you look at potentially getting a mortgage on another one? I would. This is where you and I talked before this, and I appeared on Dave Ramsey last year, and he He's a proponent, you know, no debt, no mortgage, pay cash. To me, the the typical person that wants to get into real estate investing, I was one of them years ago. The to save, I want I want to focus where I live. Let's say you can get a good three two for say one hundred twenty thousand dollars. The amount of time it's going to take a person making fifty to seventy five k a year to save that kind of money is a very long time. So I I would have no problem going out and getting a mortgage on a property, as long as you do your homework, you know, the area is good, like the area that I own two of our rentals that they pop and they could cash flow. So have I done it? No, but I do have, I will admit the lake house that I own that I mentioned does have a small mortgage on it. So it does cash flow about $300 a month. So I do, so I do take cash for obviously the house I live in. I paid off as I talked about, I got the two rentals in that really good town West of Indy but the lake house does have a small mortgage on it. So I do, I do have a mortgage that do cash flow of the three. Awesome. Andy, you've got a net worth hovering around $4 million. You're 48 years yes. old. 
You've got three children. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you go from here? Is there a net worth goal you want to hit or a passive income? Well, number? It's, it's funny you say that because my, my first goal, obviously, when I was 19 was to become a millionaire by 30. It took me to 36 to hit that status. I never looked beyond a million. <laughs> and the day I hit that million was, it was in January of 07. It was just an ordinary day. Nothing happened. No fireworks. Just a, another day going to, the, to work. But obviously, I've done some things right. My target, honestly, when I was looking at this, say, five, six years ago, I could see this growing to about $10 million by 55, but something changed in me. It's called your 40s <laughs> and the potential finish line of retiring early. This early is obviously defined by different people in the fire community, but to me, early is in my early 50s is kind of the target. So my goal of a net worth, it's not there anymore. Everything I invest in now is completely all produces income. So my goal now is just to build as much passive income as possible because I'm wanting to retire here in about five or six years and just live off that passive income. So do I have a goal for net worth? Not anymore. It's all about passive income and that to a hundred thousand a year. Gotcha. That's awesome. So real quick here, just before we dive into these millionaire rapid fire questions, just sure. you have about 150 in cash and cash equivalents and, and $200,000. Uh, is that annually in music royalties? Music royalty, that's an interesting one. I own, that That would be the total value. Those music royalties right now are producing, let me do the math here in my head, between 15 and 20 grand a year in passive income, and it's growing. And I don't want to spend the whole podcast explaining the dynamics of the music industry. There's some very positive things that have happened with streaming that have made royalties grow. But that total amount, the, the, the key to music royalties, and I, I I'm not through my website, people see that and I get a lot of questions. It's not liquid. When you buy those things, you pretty much own them for life. So if I were to liquidate those, very hard to sell. So I buy them for lifetime payouts because they're going to last so long, I'll be able to will them to my kids and down the line. But So that amount is what they would be worth. But for me to go out and convert that to cash, not very liquid, if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, gotcha. And then on the cash, you have about 150000 Are you saving that for something or, or just kind of have, using that as a, a large emergency fund? Primarily for opportunity. <laughs> so if for some reason, one of my real estate investing friends or even a music royalty or something pops up that could be converted in, primarily I'd focus for passive income. I want to be ready to pounce on that. So I just keep that available for opportunity. And a a huge opportunity came to me today. I can't discuss it's private, but I'm kind of on fire tonight because of a a very, very big deal that just popped uh, to me today that I'm ready to take advantage of just because I have that cash. Awesome. Good for you. Yeah. And I think that's a message to to all of us and to our listeners is being ready in opportunities, right? And, And maybe having some cash or at least having some liquidity or flexibility to invest in in solid projects or deals when they become available. So let's dive into these uh, rapid fire questions here. Sure. sure. So the most expensive pair of jeans or pants that you've ever purchased? The most expensive pair of pants I've ever purchased was a pair of jeans and it was $38 in my 20s. Most expensive shoes were a pair of Johnson and Murphy's and I think I paid $92 for them. All right. Most expensive car. Most expensive car. Now, this is an interesting question. I drive a new car, but I've never bought a new car. People say, how is that? Fortunately, in my position in my company, I get a company car. So every three years, I go, I get to go out and buy a new car that somebody else finances. 
But what I do is I actually, after that lease is up, I actually buy it from the company, which is a great way because I know it's been taken care of. And I think the most expensive one I bought was a 2009 Audi that hit the three-year lease. And I bought it for $15,000. Well, okay. Uh, most expensive meal out that you've paid for? Ooh, well, just <laughs> a few nights ago, I took my fiance out for her birthday at a really nice steak place. And she and I talked about this. And it was probably just a few nights ago. I think our bill was $192. All righty. What item or items or experiences are worth spending more money on to you? Well, as you and I talked before this, I'm a big sports fan. I play sports. I watch sports. I have three teens, two girls and a boy. They all play sports. We love sports. My splurge is probably getting the NFL package and the MLB package on DirecTV. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a splurge, man. But it's only costing you, what, a couple hundred bucks a year? Yeah, but if you knew how frugal I was, people were surprised I spent that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there you go. Uh, high school and college GPA, if you can remember. Oh, high school was solid just because I, uh, I took AP and honors classes, and I graduated the 4.4 on a 4 scale just because I got weighted up on some of those. College was, and this still annoys me to this day, 2.99. I missed 3.0 by 0.01. <laughs> and the uh, range of household income through your work in life? Started off right out of college, exactly at $30,000 was my first job. And my biggest year was probably 2017. And I think it was just uh, in the low 200s. Awesome. Andy, what what kind of advice would you give someone who's just starting out? They want to get rolling. Maybe they want to get a rental property. Maybe they want to invest in the market. Where, where, where do they start? What's your advice for them? Well, my advice, as I said earlier in the interview, is honestly, is make sure your life itself is in order. Make sure everything that is not right or chaotic in your life is is focused on and fixed. But in terms of actually getting into investments of any sort, really what was critical to me and educating me. So I would say that would be the first thing I do is learn before you jump into things. Because in our society today, you turn on the TV and people are flipping houses. People are doing seminars. They make this stuff look very, very easy. And it's not easy. (laughs) But it's easier if you have education and know what you're doing. And I think an important thing, and I've had many, many people take me under their wings, have been very blessed over the years, and that's finding a mentor. I had some mentors in my 20 that were entrepreneurs and investors that helped me. And I, when I got into real estate, I got a, a guy that's very successful that kind of guided me over my shoulder. So how you get mentors is not always the easiest thing to do. But if you can get one, that would be my advice is have somebody in your corner that can help you, guide you, and you don't make big mistakes. That's awesome. Where can people find you or get a hold of you or learn more about you? Yeah, if they want to get in touch with me, I'm very responsive through my Facebook page and my website. The website's A Millionaire Next Door, which is obviously very close to the book, The Millionaire Next Door. I didn't want to use that because it's obviously a legendary title, but I always viewed myself as A Millionaire Next Door, so I grabbed that domain. So I've got a millionairenextdoor.com, and then on Facebook, it's just A Millionaire Next Door as well. And uh, as I say, I I respond to every single message and email that I get usually quickly. Awesome. Andy with a net worth hovering around $4 million from a millionairenextdoor.com. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Really like the show and glad you had me on. Thanks, Andy. 
Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.